The role of the director as an arbiter of taste and a creative visionary began in the theatre and developed as theatres became more commercial. The work of the director was logically extended into filmmaking once films began to take on a narrative form. Let's listen to Welsh director Mark Evans talking about his experiences of filmmaking. No, you don't sort of choose projects, they choose you in a way. You, find some, you try and find something that you're interested in and you're able to do and then is able to get financed. Um, and also, I'm Welsh and I, and, I, and I want to make stuff which, which is about here, you know. Um, it's hard, it's very hard to get a Welsh drama feature made, is the truth of it. Posted five years, to, to five years to find that, so actively directors. That's not to say they need to do anything much more than be there. But, but it's like they would, there was nothing that an actor would hate more than a vacuum of fear where the director should be or a lack of sort of somebody to just uh, And you know, when you work with actors that good, it feels more like directing traffic than anything else. It's just kind of there because it's, it's about giving them a space and a, and a structure to do what they do best. And they, research, you know, they take charge of it. What good actors do, they take charge of their characters, they take responsibility for the characters. And, um, and, and rehearsal with actors are, it tends to be about you know, running the script and talking about the script, but not really about sort of the basics because they're, and they're so technically good that you don't have to worry about that stuff. So in a way it's easier, but in another way, obviously it's a little bit more uh, scary, but you know, the, the good news is they're very decent human beings. So, uh, but I do think that British ones in particular come out of a, a kind of culture of low budget and talent. I mean, you know, I started television a lot and my contemporaries did Michael Winterbottom, Danny Boyle, all those guys are, you know, kind of the foremost directors of their generation really. And, I think what Tally teaches you and, uh, is, 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 you know, is that you have to kind of be, you have to be fast and inventive. And there's a kind of energy sometimes that comes out of that which is really good. There obviously are their frustrations, and then there are terrible frustrations sometimes about not being able to achieve sort of things that you you'd like to achieve. But I, in general, I would rather keep working on low-budget films and spend a lot of time trying to trying to get into a bigger budget film category. You know what I mean? Um, if that ever came along, it would be interesting to know. I mean, the most expensive film I made was Trauma, which in some ways was the least successful one. Um, and that was a budget of six million, and that had Colin Firth in it, I mean, the scenario was quite high, sort of. John Matheson shot it, you know, shot Gladiator. Um, I don't think it was any different, really, substantially, to the, the ones I've made for three million. Now. For me, I would rather have, if you said, do you want equipment or do you want time, it comes out the one that I would say, give me time. Because if you have time, you can do a lot of stuff on film. And, and, and the hardest thing on low budget is your fiber. <laughs> And do you know what the trouble is with, it, with, it, with getting a bigger film is that there's a bigger responsibility. So the more expensive the film, suddenly you're, you're in a different category of expectation in terms of box office, which can be really scary. Because at the end of the day, the problem with filmmaking at the moment is, pretty much at any level, is that you, you're, you're dependent upon the market, really. So you know, will it do good box office? Will it do well on DVD? If it does well, then, then you are viewed as somebody who might be interested with another film of the same size or bigger. But if it doesn't, you know, I have felt the cold wind of bad reviews and, and I, there's been a time after Resurrection actually I thought, do you know what, I might not, might not get to make another film. And so you've got to be quite robust in your attitude towards it. And, um, and I think, my, as you said, that the film that kind of, if you looked at it analytically, was most successful. It was my little because we made it for so little, so little money and it made four million quid or something. And suddenly that actually allowed me to, to have, I was sent many more scripts after that and people felt that I could wrongly, as it turned out, turn a, you know, a, a mediocre horror script into a great film, which is kind of what didn't happen with trauma. Um, I would rather, if I, if I was allowed to, kind of work under the radar and be a bit freer and not have this pressure of 
feeling that you have to perform with a box office and internationally in order to get your next film. But then obviously the filmmaker in me would like to have more money to, to play with. Um, the horror films have to do one thing, they have to scare the audience. And the second thing they have to do, they have to earn the respect of the horror audience, which is the most picky and loyal audience if you do win the respect around. Um, and I'd never made a horror film before, and the reason I was attracted to the film was because, again, because of a formal idea, I suppose, which is how do you, how do you t sell the idea of a website? And how, what if you shot a film exactly as a web website would be shot, which is from the point of view of stuffy cameras, which can only zoom and pan and tilt. So what we did was we built a house and we, we identified where in every room the cameras would be, and that would, those were our camera positions for two-thirds of the film. And then we, then we invented some more camera positions and some secret camera positions. And we never fundamentally broke that rule that every camera angle in the film was from a fixed point. Yeah. Like we thought we'd be very big and clever doing this, and then we thought, that, well, okay, then we'll do that, we'll follow that. And as we got to the edit, more, more, more rules occurred to us. The, the more expensive uh, you know, studio version of that film, that girl would have survived. And she would have run away, and she would have probably keyed somewhere and the cops would have arrived, and it would have, been, it would, it would, it would have shown everybody that actually it's a benign society, and those things are not possible. But it, it would have been far more uh, commercial, I think, had it not been quite so grim and quite so brutal at the end. You know, since then, I, I got, did get a bit stuck in horror jail as a director. Like, all the scripts that came into me were horror scripts, and you kind of unwittingly joined the society of cloaked people. <laughs> the dark side. The dark side, yeah. So, you know, if you want a good night in, just take a couple of horror films out, because there's always something in them yeah. which is inventive or imaginative. And it was really nice to be allowed to play in that area. I think what you don't get in the same way is any kind of credibility. You know, it's very cruel business and sort of people look at your box office and all that. And I sort of felt that I'd made a couple of horror films, one was successful and one wasn't. And then I, I was sort of languishing in this area where what I was getting was a lot of bad horror scripts and nobody would look at me for anything else. And the great stroke of luck I had with uh, Snowkick was that the script went to a company called Evolution Films, a very brilliant film company run by Michael Winterbottom and, uh, and um, Andrew Eaton, who were old friends of mine. And it wasn't a script that Michael wanted to do, and I'm not even sure if you read it actually, but Andrew sent it to me. And it was just one of the, sometimes in this business it's really nice to have people who know you personally as opposed to, you know, pigeonhole you, because I would never have been given that script, I don't think, by another producer. When you see films that just seem right, seem well made, where whichever direction or genre they come from, it just you, having you know having made a lot of films where one of the wheels comes off at some point, that that to achieve that is quite an amazing thing, and, and even the greatest directors don't always achieve it. So um, as a result, my my, my favourite directors now change. We talked about earlier. Those, you know, even in films are quite flawed. Sometimes there's those epiphanies, those moments of just beauty or truth that just actually ultimately make you want to go out and try again.